At Urban Farm Podcast, we are all about education, and April is Foliar Feeding Month. Have you heard of it? It is a super simple application of spraying liquid organic fertilizer on your trees and garden plants. The leaves, branches, and trunks are incredible at absorbing nutrients. And if your soil isn't great or your pH is off, foliar feeding is a quick and long-lasting fix to get your plants the nutrients they need. Want to learn more? Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 393rd episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Do you want to save money at the grocery store, eat more organic, whole foods, cultivate food security, and feel more connected to the earth? If so, then growing your own food is a no-brainer. You wouldn't believe how many people come to me claiming that they can't grow their own food. They think they don't have enough space, that they're too busy, or that they simply don't have what it takes. Perhaps you've fallen for one of these gardening myths. If you think you can't grow food, or if you think the only food that you have access to is what you buy in the grocery store, I have a life-changing webinar that you need to see. It's free and will help you unearth your inner gardener. I've helped thousands of people just like you learn to grow their own food. And I'm speaking from my own experience when I say that with the right knowledge in place, there is no such thing as a black thumb. With this webinar, you can begin making your garden dreams come true and start growing delicious, nutritious food for your family. Just text GARDEN to 44222 or go to IWantToGarden.com and you will receive our free webinar about the seven key factors you need to know to grow your own food. Remember, that's GARDEN to 44222 or IWantToGarden.com. Today on our podcast, we have someone who is promoting the planting, stewarding, and harvesting of native foods in the Sonoran Desert. We're talking with returning guests and my good friend, Brad Lancaster, about wild food forestry. Brad runs a successful permaculture design, consulting, and education business. He is focused on integrating and sustainable approaches to landscape design, planning, and living. Growing up in a dryland environment, water harvesting has long been one of his specialties and a true passion. He is the author of a permaculture bible for water harvesting called Rainwater Harvesting for Drylands and Beyond, Volumes 1 and 2, and is a contributor to the Desert Harvester's Eat Mesquite and More cookbook. This new release centers on the abundant harvest of mesquite and other Sonoran Desert plant foods that we can plant, steward, and enjoy where we live, work, and play. Welcome back to the show, Brad. Are you ready to rock wild harvesting? Absolutely. Excellent. So we got to meet you in podcast episode 110, where we talked all about rainwater harvesting back in July of 2016. Can you bring us up to speed on what's been happening with you since? Yeah, well, probably the thing I'm most excited about is the release of Desert Harvester's award-winning book, Eat Mesquite and More. This thing is just an amazing guide on how to more regeneratively live in the place where we find ourselves. And it's got over 20 wild plant foods that are featured. The whole thing's laid out kind of like a calendar in that you can open it up to any month of the year to see what's ripe at that time and what you can plant 
or harvest at that time. And it's not just plant foods. We've also got a few meats, such as grasshopper and the sweet meat of the desert, pack rat. I saw that in there. Yeah, I'm just really excited that this has been released because it's a fantastic resource for folks, not just on how to enjoy these foods, but also on how to grow more of them where we live, work, and play. And to do so in a way that does not extract from our community's water resources and fertility, but rather enhances them over time with very simple, effective strategies. Beautiful. So I've lived in Phoenix for 51 years now. And when I was a kid, we used to pick prickly pears, say that three times fast, right? On the way back from Payson, where we had a cabin. And so for me, for decades, the wild food that came from the desert was prickly pears. But there is so much more as evidenced by this book. Tell me about what else we can find out there that's edible in the desert that we can eat. Well, I love that you started with prickly pear. That's oftentimes a delicious gateway food for people to start to enter the world of wild foods. Because there's over 400 food plants here in the Sonoran Desert. And prickly pear is a great one. There's many other cactus fruits. The saguaro cactus fruit is incredible. That's one of my favorites. Barrel cactus fruit. And then there's flower buds of a number of the cactus, such as the choya cactus. And the barrel cactus flower buds can be enjoyed as well. Then we can go into the bean trees such as the mesquite tree. It's kind of like the desert's carob tree, which has delicious edible seed pods. You've got the Palo Verde, particularly the Foothills Palo Verde. I find that the most delicious variety of our local Palo Verdes. Uh Got green beans when the seeds are green, and it's got edible flowers. You can also harvest the flowers from the desert ironwood tree. And its seed can be processed and enjoyed either as edamame when it's green or as peanuts when it's matured to the brown stage. Wow. So I've often compared edamame to the Palo Verde. That actually has a very edamame look and taste. But what you're telling me is the ironwood's the same way? Yeah, and actually, I even go for that one more often. But it all depends on one's palate and the availability of what they have growing around them. But yeah, they can both be utilized that way. Wow. So my first kind of memory of that there was more than prickly pears out there was when I picked up a book called Food Plants of the Sonoran Desert by Wendy Hodgson. Yeah, great book. Yeah. You said over 400, right? Yeah. So what is one of the more unique ones? I mean, there's so many. I'll just throw out a couple. The chuparosa. It's a thornless shrub that the hummingbirds love frequenting its red and yellow blossoms. I love that one because it's got cucumber-flavored flowers, which are great to have as a garnish or, you know, top salads and whatnot. And it's so easy to grow. The hummingbirds love it. I love it. You know, everyone loves it. And another one I'll throw in there is the wild oregano or the oregano, Aloysia ridei. So I've tried growing oregano, been fairly successful, but the introduced oregano oftentimes will die back or die out in a really hot, dry season. Then mm-hmm. the native perennial, not annual or biennial, oregano, it just cranks. It does great all year round. And I don't need to supplementarily irrigate it as long as I've planted it within a very simple passive water harvesting earthwork. Yeah. So the rain does the watering for me. Nice. Looking at the whole landscape of desert edibles and wild foods in the Southwest, there seems to be like there might be a whole lot of potential here. 
Yeah, there's huge potential. The great thing is with the bulk of the plants that we highlight in Eat Mesquite and More, they're perennials. So you're not having to plant year after year. You you get them established and they're there for their lifetime. It's very low maintenance in that sense. The great thing about the native plants is they all can survive in our native climate. That's where they've adapted over millennia. But if we slightly alter things with passive water harvesting earthworks, so say we create a basin-like shape in the soil beside a surface that drains runoff, maybe that's a pathway, street, roof, what have you, we can greatly increase the amount of available rainfall because we've got the rain falling from the sky into Mm -hmm. this basin, plus the runoff contributing to it. So we can easily triple the available rainfall. So even in really dry drought years, things can do well. So these native plants, they're just the best adapted to thrive in these conditions, not just survive, but thrive. And the other great benefit of them all is they're not just benefiting us, but they're benefiting this local ecology and the larger living system. So let me give you an example comparing two mesquite trees, a native velvet mesquite tree to a non-native South American hybrid that's been planted here in Arizona. So these South American hybrids, they tend to be the more popular trees in the nursery trade because they're faster growing. However, they also are much, much more likely to blow over in a storm because their root network's nowhere near as robust as the natives. Mm -hmm. Anyhow, some studies have compared the amount of wildlife supported by these two trees here in Arizona. The native velvet mesquite will support over 60 native pollinators. Wow. Whereas you bring in a South American hybrid and plant that in Arizona, it's only going to support about 12 native pollinators, much less. Because the native pollinators, they've co-adapted with the native plants to their blooming times, their pollen counts, and so on. If you want to support the larger life of this place, you can't do better than a native. And furthermore, its flavors and whatnot are directly connected to the cultural heritage of this place and all the different peoples that have utilized that for many generations. Wow. And the tastes are just amazing. I've had an opportunity to taste multiple different wild harvested things from the Sonoran Desert. Can you talk to me about taste? Yeah, absolutely. So it's just great because you can so diversify and increase the flavors available to your palate. And there can be a huge variability amongst even same plant. Some plants I find their flavor, like the prickly pear I find is pretty constant amongst the various plants. However, you can find plants that have a superior flavor or texture or whatnot, and particularly with mesquites. So the mesquite, we always say taste before you pick because there can be a huge variability in flavor between different trees. Individual trees largely hold their flavor characteristics from year after year. Yeah, we encourage people to taste before they pick, so they only pick from good tasting trees, not the heinous ones. Yeah. Turns out that from just some informal surveying we've done, the native mesquites on the whole taste better much more often than the hybrid mesquites that have been introduced to our region. Often I've found that the hybrids that we harvest, well, we don't harvest, but we taste, they have this chalky end to them that is just kind of puckers your mouth. That's a key thing too. It's really key that we're harvesting good to great tasting stuff because when you get that heinous flavor in there, like the chalkiness you get in those introduced mesquites, Uh that's going to stick with the food no matter how you process it, no matter how you cook it. So you're never going to have a great tasting end product unless you start with great tasting source ingredients. Perfect. So 
What do you see for the future? Well, I see it growing in a huge manner because it's so easy to do. And especially as our climate changes and we experience more extremes, more extreme drought, more extreme heat, even cold certain times, the natives tend to be, at least in my experience, much more resilient. And as some of the less hardy introduced crops might seasonally fail, we've got these natives that we can really depend on even in the extreme times. And furthermore, they can help us buffer those extremes. So there's great potential to bring a lot of these native perennial wild foods into our current agriculture and gardening practices. So for example, the native velvet mesquite tree, it's a very hardy tree and it's also a nitrogen fixer, meaning it's got associate life forms on its roots that convert atmospheric nitrogen, which is in a form plants cannot use, they transform it into a form that plants can use. So the mesquite tree is like a living fertilizer factory. It provides more nitrogen to not only the tree, but surrounding plants and not just with the life forms on its roots, but in the pods that it drops. You can plant this hardy native mesquite tree on the west side of your garden, or if it's in a farm along the west, you can create a hedgerow or a shelter belt along the west side of your field or fields. So that way you're protecting the crops to the east of the tree or trees from that most intense, hot, dry afternoon sun. You can also use it as a windbreak, thereby reducing the water loss from the soil and the plants because they're being shaded in the afternoon and cooled by this hardy native tree to the west. It's a means of reducing our water consumption, enhancing our fertility, and reducing other problems like the drying out that can happen from high winds and so on. Yeah. And we're bringing more pollinators in to, you know, pollinate everything. Mm -hmm. So one of the experiments I've been doing here at the Urban Farm recently is I got one of those temperature guns, you know, you can point it and it'll give you the temperature. Because I'm really wanting to get a sense of how hot it really is out there. And it seems to me, having gardened here for over 40 years in Phoenix, that it's getting more harsh and hotter out there. But one of the things that I found is that top soil temperature at noon is running around 140 degrees. Yeah. And under a shaded area, I found one place in my front yard that was shaded, in this case, by sweet potatoes that I have growing out there. But it was like 89 degrees underneath it, just simply by shading the soil. And what are we doing there by creating that shade? Well, a lot of great stuff's going on. We're creating a much more sheltered, beneficial environment. I want to you know, build on what you're saying there. The, the native velvet mesquite, I find it a fantastic tree to grow a garden underneath its canopy in the hot season because there's enough shade to cool it, as you just observed. But it's also a fantastic tree under which to grow during the winter cool season because then it drops the majority of its leaves and it lets much more sun in during the day. But at night, it's reduced heat loss you know, our dry atmosphere. So it kind of acts like an insulated blanket, even the bare branches. So it's warmer at night in the winter. So I don't get as much frost damage in the winter. So it works in both seasons. Nice. Gary Nabhan's got a book coming out this fall on mesquite. And he had many great parts in it, but one that I loved was, he says in the dry land, hotter environments, typically the thing that's lacking is shade. And we find that life will emerge, will grow, will germinate where we've got shade pockets as opposed to light pockets that you might find in the tropical environment. And I find that very often as I'm trying to regenerate, revegetate barren parts of my neighborhood, where I start to get shade established, sometimes it's just with a little shrub, sometimes it's with a tree, I have much greater success getting volunteer seeds germinating beneath it. 
then there's the litter from the plant that also creates the mulch that helps build healthier soil that nurtures the space as well. Yeah, and it increases the rate at which water infiltrates because you've got more of a sponge with that organic matter, and it reduces the rate of water loss to evaporation, again, because that sponge is now acting as kind of like an insulated blanket. If you don't live in the Sonoran Desert, these concepts that Brad is talking about, they can be applied elsewhere too. Can you speak to that a little bit, Brad? Yeah, you mean other biomes? Biomes, exactly. Other climates. The extremes I was just talking about that are buffered by the mesquite tree, they'll be just as valuable if you're in a cold climate in Minnesota or or Nebraska, because those shelter belts, well, they're still going to benefit you very much in your hot, dry seasons Mm -hmm. by similarly buffering the extreme heat. Those shelter belts become really important in the cold season for reducing wind speeds, which, you know, really drop temperature. Yeah you're helping deflect adverse cold. And furthermore, for people that are interested, you can set up your shelter belts, you can set up their density and height to capture snow berms. As opposed to getting snow accumulating up against the house, you can space and size these shelter belts so you get the snow accumulating within the shelter belt and then becoming of irrigation source. And if people go to my website, harvestingrainwater.com, they can go to the page I have on snow harvesting, and I have way more links on that. Beautiful. That was harvestingrainwater.com? Yeah. Excellent. I want to jump back into the book and talk about actually one of my favorites, and that's the saguaro. I noticed you have a lot of recipes in here for saguaro stuff, but my question for you is, how do you ever harvest enough, and how does it make it home? I call it the candy of the gods because it is just so incredible. Every time I've been out to harvest, it never makes it home because I eat it all. Yeah, well, I can totally relate to that. Well, here's the key. I and my neighbors and all, we're planting it so it's at home. We don't have to leave home. Right. The saguaro cactus, it's a great plant, living totem. So when friends and family and whatnot, if there's a key marker in their life, like a birth, graduation, getting a new job, whatnot, anniversary, I love to gift people with a six-inch tall saguaro grown from seed. And there's a local nursery, box nursery, which grows them from seed. And then this saguaro grows with them and becomes a living marker in time of, of that event in their life. My youngest brother, Mark, my family moved to Tucson in 1970. He was born in 1970, and he was bigger than the six-inch saguaro that was there in our front yard. Mm-hmm. And you go back now today, and that saguaro is twice his height. Wow. But that saguaro is a marker of his birth. So now I've given him young saguaros to plant with the birth of his children. So it's not only just this living marker in time, but as we're planting that you know, in the neighborhood where we live, we're getting the fruit is now being produced in some of these saguaros right where we are. Yeah. Then the other key thing, you know, if you're going out to the desert, we, you know, one can harvest and what's enough, and that's for something we all need to consciously figure out. And we can partake of that, but, you know, we also got to make sure that we're leaving plenty for the abundant wildlife out there and other people who are yet to come to harvest. There you go. Exactly. So we've been friends for a couple of decades now. And one of the things that I really admire about you is how you've brought the community together in your area down in Tucson, Arizona. And one of the places you brought the community together was around mesquite 
bean harvesting. You bought a mill. Tell us about how the community came together and how Desert Harvesters got creative, which is, by the way, the creator of this book, Eat Mesquite and More, is Desert Harvesters. So tell us about Desert Harvesters. Desert Harvesters is a nonprofit organization here in Tucson, and it's made up of a very diverse bunch of amazing local wild foods enthusiasts. So you know, very much a collective in that sense. You know, Barbara Rose from Bean Tree Farm. You've got Jill Lorenzini from Arizona Homemade Artisans. And Dana Helfner was very active in the past with Rattlebox Farm. And Amy Schwem with Mono y Matate and a great many others. So what's great is when you got this diverse bunch of people, everyone's helping cross-pollinate, sharing ideas. And as we all are innovating in our own lives, we're learning more and inspiring each other. So it's kind of being inspired by that and wanting to take that to a larger percentage of the population, Desert Harvesters was formed to help people see how they can tap into and enhance the bounty growing in their neighborhood. Because we had planted a great many wild food trees here in the Dunbar Spring neighborhood, and we'd plant within water harvesting earthworks, so the street runoff was irrigating the street side trees for free. When we did that, the trees started to grow to an age they started to produce we realized, wow, you know, we've got all this food, but some of it, like the mesquite, can be a little bit challenging to process if you don't have the right equipment. Because of the hard seed, you need an expeller-like mill to help grind it up. We were inspired by another group, the Cascabel Hermitage Association and Conservation Association, that had found an old hammer mill that can rapidly grind five gallons of whole pods into one gallon of mesquite flour in just five minutes. So all of a sudden, these mesquite pods became very easy to convert into flour. And you know, I need to point out, too, you don't even need a mill to enjoy mesquite. You can process the pods just by you know cooking them down in water. You can make syrups, broths, great many dishes, and you can even cook it down into toffee, you know, all of which we describe in the Eat Mesquite More cookbook. We were so inspired by Cascabel, but at the same time realizing that most Tucsonans were not going to do the hour and a half drive to visit their event, we decided to bring a mill to Tucson. So we got a grant to get a mill, put it on a trailer so it would be mobile and could take it to different neighborhoods, and created an annual mesquite milling event, which has continued to this day. And it's great because people can come to the event they can see the pods. We also have these tasting tables where people can taste a great array of mesquite pods. Many people just bring the pods from the tree in their yard and they've never tasted anything else. So we want to broaden their awareness. People are tasting nutty flavored pods, apple or fruity flavored pods, sweet and sour, carob-like. So that encourages them to be more adventurous, try even more, plant even more even. Mm -hmm. So then they're able to see how it's all processed. They can talk to others that come to the event, see what they're doing. And sometimes when we've got the funding for the event, we'll even have wild foods available. So we've in the past had these amazing bake sales where we put the word out to the community. Hey, we'd love to have a lot of stuff at the milling event. Would you be willing to bake something for it? It's been incredible what's shown up, like Indian on bread with prickly pear and pistachio chutney, for example. And then on the other side of the spectrum, dog biscuits. You know, way back in the day, we did pancakes, but these bake sales were so much cooler because it wasn't us producing the food, it was the community producing the food and a much greater diversity of foods. And this is how the cookbook emerged. We realized that mesquite, you know, which we'd been advocating people use for a long time, that was always meant to be the gateway food, okay? To lure people in to the 400-some wild food plants, not just one, not just mesquite. And also, we didn't want people to get stuck just on pancakes. So by putting out the call to make whatever they could think of, 
with mesquite and other wild food ingredients. You know, it diversified so much more. And then we had these community tasting events to create the cookbook where we asked people to create foods with wild food ingredients. And then we had public event where people come taste it and they could mark down what was good, what was great. And only the great tasting stuff made it to the next stage into the cookbook. And it still didn't make it to the cookbook because then we had to have people see if they could replicate the recipe. All right. There was all these filters through which the recipes had to pass before they made it into the cookbook. One of the things that was so great is like, let's take prickly pear. So you mentioned that was your gateway food. Mm -hmm. I love that Barbara Rose, she took prickly pear and she comes from a Ukrainian Jewish heritage. Her family does. So borscht was one of the family recipes, but that requires beets. And she's like, well, you know, beets don't really grow in the desert. But what looks like a beet? Well, the prickly pear fruit does. Right. There was this amazing fusion of her cultural heritage of another place fused with her current place, Tucson, and the wild foods unique and indigenous to this place and fused the two. And there's a great many recipes in Eat Mesquite and More, which are these amazing fusions of cultures of other place with the wild foods unique to this place, meant as a way to bridge and connect and deepen our connection. And then we want to go further still so people aren't just getting this mindset of going out and extracting these foods, but how can we plant them, again, is where we live, work, and play, in such a way and water them in such a way that they're giving back more to the ecological system that sustains us all. How cool is that? So one of the things, I'm going to bring this up again because it's so epic. In fact, my listeners know that I'm always looking for epic. This is one of them. Heads up. You continue to wrap community into the conversation over and over and over again. There is so many levels of community that happened just in what you shared about. And I just want to, you know, do a virtual high five to you for that. That's great. Thanks so much for that. It's everyone that's doing this work. You know, there's so many groups. You know, Desert Harvesters is just one of many. And we really rely rely on each other. And as we're finding these wild foods becoming more and more popular again, and as restaurants and stuff start to incorporate them and people want to incorporate it just in their own home menus, sometimes there's not enough supply. So there's folks like the San Javier farm that out on the San Javier reservation where they're growing the choya buds, mesquite flour and whatnot, and making it available commercially. And that's so key. We need more people doing that. Yeah. But they're also replanting which is key. And the other thing too, with this whole community part is, you know, I think one of the intents is to change culture. So we lost so much of this cultural knowledge. It's not of my family. My family's not from here. I had to learn from people that are from here mm -hmm. as I grew up here. I so appreciate that of them. And I think there's too many practices out in our built environment of how we build things and maintain things that lessen life and the quality of life over time, like our overpaving of the urban environment that then drains the stormwater out of the system. But we can so easily tweak that informed by traditional strategies where we're harvesting the runoff as opposed to draining it away. And we're planting more living food bearing abundance as opposed to blading it out. And we can incorporate the traditional knowledge of how to process and utilize those plants and also with new fusions, create even new flavors and 
combinations. And you know, if we don't get more people doing this, it's not going to work. None of the stuff works mm-hmm. as a single person. It's just like in life. If there's one animal left, it can't breed and reproduce and it's going to die out. We've got to be reproducing and we've got to be cross-pollinizing so that we're creating new. We're evolving. We're trying to mimic natural systems in that sense, I think. Yeah, exactly. You touched on rainwater harvesting. So I want to kind of bring that in here just a little bit. And one of the metaphors that you use in your talks and in some, I don't know whether you wrote about this, I'm sure you did, but how we as human beings have created our 20th century river systems as the roads. When I heard you talk about that one day, that was so impactful because, you know, last night we had an epic event here in Phoenix. We got over an inch of rain. And when I walked out on the road in front of me, there was this massive river in front of my house. Yeah. Great opportunity there. So we did a little calculation that showed here in Tucson where we just get 11 inches of rain a year. And the average year of rainfall, looking at just a one mile stretch of a typical neighborhood street, not a really wide street, just a neighborhood street, there's over a million gallons of rain per mile falling on that neighborhood street in a year. So that's enough water to sustain over 400 native food bearing shade trees per mile. If we direct that street runoff off the street and into the street side planting basins. So in Phoenix, just as in Tucson, we have the potential for every street to be a passively shaded food-bearing corridor for people, wildlife, and much more. So much potential there. The whole idea is to get away from this mentality of draining water and instead to infiltrating water. So we're reinvesting or reinfiltrating it back into the soil, the soil life, the plants, the living pumps, which are the plants, so that it can be utilized, it can buffer the extremes of the climate and grow more regenerative resources. And it's super simple. We're doing it here in our neighborhood. Many other neighborhoods are doing the same. I show in my books, Rainwater Harvesting for Drylands and Beyond, how to do it in a very simple, conscious way. And then in Eat Mesquite and More, Desert Harvesters is showing how we can be real conscious in our selection of the plants that we plant to not just produce shade, but also diverse abundant foods that are ripening all throughout the year, not just one season, and how we can support the wildlife at the same time. And now some people listening might be thinking, whoa, what about all those toxins coming off the street? Well, we're not planting annuals. We're not planting tuber crops alongside the street that are getting street runoff. Those take the heavy metals and some of the toxins coming off the road. So instead, we're planting perennial plants, particularly woody perennials, because Mitch Pavo-Zuckerman, a researcher at the UVA, found that toxins such as the heavy metals are not uptaken into the edible portion of the plant when we're working with woody perennial plants, like a native mesquite tree that's getting street runoff. So it's right plant in right place. You plant your annuals and your root crops in your yard that are getting nice, clean roof runoff, no street runoff. Yeah. You know, I get that question a lot from people. So thank you for that clarity. I appreciate it. So once again, for those people that don't live in the Sonoran Desert, there's so much here from a philosophical perspective that you can implement in your yard. So if you don't live in the Sonoran Desert, how does this stuff apply to what I'm doing where I'm at? Because as I listen through Brad talking, there's so many conversation points, you know, you can dive into there. Greg, I want to tag on to that. So one of our other intentions when we created Eat Mesquite and More is for it to be a template for any bioregion. So 
basically, we've laid out the cookbook, as I mentioned earlier, by every month of the year. So you can open it up to any season, any month of the year, and see what plants should be planted at that time, what are ready to harvest at that time, and then how to process it, and so on. Any community can do that, create such a guide. And then we're highlighting some of the more easy-to-succeed with and delicious food and plants and animal foods of this area that are otherwise forgotten or overlooked. So we're bringing them back into the spotlight. And then we're showcasing, we've got a number of stories showcasing diverse groups, not just desert harvesters, but many other groups and individuals that are tapping into and enhancing this abundance so they can inspire people in that way too. And many of the plants, or at least the plant families that are featured in Eat Mesquite and More, can be found in the other deserts and drylands of North and South America. It's, I guess, use extends well beyond the Sonoran Desert. And our sister, our parallel deserts Mojave and Chihuahuan Desert on either side of us. There's many crossovers there. I just did a little mini book tour in New Mexico, and I'm so envious of their choya buds there. So their choya flower buds are four times the size of ours here in the Sonoran Desert. They were a traditional food, but have largely been forgotten, encouraging people to tap into that up there. It's such an easy harvest. These things are huge and delicious. And also just want to mention, I've had the opportunity to teach in Africa to rural farmers and agricultural extension agents. So a couple of years ago, when I was in Zimbabwe and Malawi, a number of people there really suffering due to hunger in a drought year. And they had planted living fences of choya cactus to protect their gardens and whatnot from goats and other animals. But while the plant had come over, because there's no cactuses, it's not native to the old world, to Africa. Uh-huh is only found in the New World, the Americas. The choy cactus was brought over. It worked great as a thorny living fence, but the knowledge of how to use it as a food hadn't come over. And this was a variety with a very large flower buds on it. So very quickly harvested some, showed people how to harvest it, showed them how to process it, and then we ate the choya buds. So all of a sudden, they were no longer literally suffering from hunger within a fence they built, but then they could now eat from the fence that they had grown as that knowledge was there. Right there in front of them. You know, they didn't even see it. That's what it was in my life. I mean, I grew up here in Tucson. We had choya cactus all over the neighborhood. And I didn't have any sense that it was edible. You know, I just hated it when I stepped on the thorn of my dog. We in the Snorn Desert and everywhere, the native plants were in these native food forests. And the limitation isn't the plants, it's us. It's our lack of knowledge and awareness. And so this Eat Mesquite More is an attempt to open the door, open the window to this potential that is already here that we can tap into instead of not see. Not see it, yeah. And I just want to throw a shout out to you again. Once again, you built the book as a template for other communities to do the same thing with their wild eats around there. It's not me alone. It's the whole Desert Harvesters team, the many other people in the community, the great many volunteers that created these recipes. It's a large community. When, when I said you, I meant Desert Harvesters you. Okay, yeah. Perfect. So the other thing I want to do a shout out to is in the book, you have sections before the recipes called meat saguaro or meat prickly pear. So you're actually telling us what they are, how to harvest them and so on and so on. So it's educational like that as well. Yeah. And how to plant them. 
Perfect. Also bring attention to efforts that are happening in Phoenix, such as your efforts to get a hammer mill to process mesquite in the Phoenix area. Oh, yes. So for several years and in the mid aughts, I guess that's what we're calling them, the aughts from 06 to like 2010, we would rent your mesquite bean mill, your being Desert Harvesters, mesquite bean mill and bring it here. And although that worked well, it was still a little bit clunky. And I have had on my vision board a mesquite mill for us here in Phoenix. And the problem is, is that they're quite expensive. They'll run, you know, $12,000. So I called you about three months ago and I said, Brad, it's time. You planted a seed with me. You said, well, I think maybe there might be one for sale in Southern Arizona. So I did a little bit of digging and before long we had located it and made a commitment to buy it. So for those of you that are in the Phoenix area, we will in 2019 have our own mesquite mill to mill our own mesquite here. And we're going to be doing a fundraiser for that, which you'll hear about probably on the podcast as well as, you know, in our social media stuff. So thank you for planting those seeds with me, Brad, because not only is it making a difference down there, it's making a difference up here. Yeah. Well, thanks for germinating those seeds. You bet. That's our job, you know. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Brad. Yeah, well, thank you. I just want to let folks know, too, where they can get some additional information and tap into some additional opportunities. Perfect. The highest priority would be to get out and get yourself a copy of Eat Mesquite and More, a cookbook of Sonoran Desert Foods and Living. And then also check out the Desert Harvesters website, desertharvesters.org, and check out the calendar of events. So we list the Phoenix event, but many other events, including Silver City, New Mexico, they're going to have a milling in October. And we've got the regular demos, wild food demonstrations that happen at the Santa Cruz River Farmer's Market twice a month in Tucson. Again, these can be templates for efforts in your area as well. And the neighborhood foresters arm of Desert Harvesters, where we're training up folks in their neighborhood to become stewards of their edible wild food forests that they can you know, plant and carry on. Because we've been finding that some of our biggest threats are the city and new residents. New residents and that people that have moved to the neighborhood and aren't familiar with the native plants, they don't recognize it for the value it is, can unconsciously cut one down. And the city, because unfortunately the city's bringing in a lot of untrained crews that come to respond to a complaint of maybe a traffic calming roundabout, it's a little messy, it's got some litter in it. And rather than just picking up the litter, they clear cut all the vegetation. We find the people that live with what they love care for those things the most. So this is why we've got this whole effort to train up neighborhood foresters that can steward and help care for these forests and save the city money too, need to send in these crews. And our hope in the long term is that we can train up those city crews so everyone's skill level and ability is enhanced as we enhance the abundance and health of the city and larger community. So again, desertharvesters.org, calendar of events for all that stuff. And I want to throw in one last plug too. I'd love to see more growers, like nursery growers and whatnot in the Phoenix area, growing wild food plants. Yes, and to be selecting for ideal characteristics. So not just most rapid growth, but ideal ripening time. Like with the mesquite, you wanna harvest before the rains so that you don't have these invisible molds that can lead to aflatoxin on the ripe crop in the high heat. So if we harvest our pods before the summer rains, no problem in the low desert. In the high desert, you don't have to worry about it because your temperatures aren't so high. Check out the aflatoxin page at desertharvesters.org for more on that. But coming back to the nursery growers, like with mesquite, if they could select seed from native mesquite trees, not 
those that have hybridized with the non-natives. So native seed that ripens at the right time. It's got great flavored pod and it comes in a dense pod cluster so you can get a very quick, efficient harvest. They would have the ultimate cash crop there, okay, because there aren't growers currently doing that and that would really up the value of what's available. And they can do the same kind of thing, looking for same type of characteristics with the various cactus, the understory plants and so on. Yeah. Thank you for saying that because I know we do have a lot of listeners in Phoenix as that's where we're based. And I'll tell you what, I could sell hundreds of them every year with my fruit tree program, maybe even more than that. So I would love to have someone out there who's interested in learning how to grow this stuff. I will coach you on that. So yeah, reach out to me, Greg at urbanfarm.org, and I'd be glad to help you get started with that. Anything else, Brad, before we sign off? And then just one other resource, if you guys want to plant the rain to irrigate your crops for free, check out my books, Rainwater Harvesting for Drylands and Beyond, and the parallel website, HarvestingRainwater.com. Another group, too, for great hands-on workshops is Bean Tree Farm. Look them up on the web. Beautiful. That's Barbara's place. Perfect. You can also find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash eat mesquite. If you'd like to hear more from Brad, you can find him in our 110th podcast episode at urbanfarm.org forward slash Lancaster. We are your urban farming resource. You can find our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and iHeartRadio. Also visit urbanfarm.org to find articles, podcasts, webinars, courses, and more. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast. Claiming your inner urban farmer is easy. Grow food, share it, and name your farm. Then let the world know you're an urban farmer while supporting our podcast. Pick up your urban farmer bling, hats, and t-shirts at imanurbanfarmer.com. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. One of the first things that many of us learn when we start to garden is how to water and fertilize the soil. But there is an exception to this rule and it's called foliar feeding. You should foliar feed or water the leaves of your plant with liquid fertilizer when you want certain nutrients to be absorbed better. Not only are the leaves great at uptaking liquid fertilizer, if your soil isn't very good or your pH is off, foliar feeding can help your veggies and fruit trees quickly get the nutrients they need to thrive. If you're ready to start foliar feeding for maximum growth yields and quality, Head on over to urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves to see our selection of foliar feeding products. That's urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves.